I'm James Pierce, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 211, and today, Jared and I have a big show for you, open source at Facebook with James Pierce. This is a big show because we go so far back. We went back to the dorm room with Mark, choosing open source for what to build upon. The LAMP stack, of course, as you all know, we talked about their open source, 180 repos, give or take on GitHub. We talked about the way they model their open source, the way they choose what to open source, the way they nurture and support their open source, but more importantly, how they look at community and how they're building community around open source. We have three sponsors today, TopTal, Linode, and Compose. Our first sponsor of the show is our friends at TopTal, the best place to work as a freelance software developer. If you're freelancing right now and you're looking for ways to work with top clients, work on things that are challenging you, interesting to you, technologies you want to use, TopTal is definitely the place for you. Top companies rely upon TopTal freelancers every single day for their most mission-critical projects. And at TopTal, you'll be part of a worldwide community of engineers and designers. They have a huge Slack community, very much like family. You'll be able to travel, blog on the TopTal engineering blog and design blog, apply for open source grants. Head to TopTal.com to learn more. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com to learn more. Or email me, adam at changelaw.com, if you prefer a more personal introduction to our friends at TopTal. And now, on to the show. Right here with James Pierce. Jared, I mean, this is a big show, open source at large at Facebook. We've obviously talked about React, we've talked about HHVM, we've talked about hip hop, we've talked about all sorts of uh, all sorts of things over these years, but never truly about open source at large. What do you think? Yeah, it's time to get the big picture. This is the, I guess, the fourth time we've had a show with somebody from Facebook. Um, and now we have James Pierce, who is, he's in charge of all of it. He's the one who looks over looks after all the open source projects so we can kind of see not just a specific project but all the stuff that's going on and uh as you well know adam this is uh, facebook's putting out so much open source these days it's you know we say open source is hard to keep up with but facebook. even just open source at facebook is hard to keep up with. right it is it is it is uh james what's your official title uh well firstly thanks very much for having me on the show um yeah i'm just I guess, head of open source. Uh, I'm responsible for running the team that uh, puts the new launches together and makes sure that we do a good job of looking after the, the projects that are already out there and uh, a variety of other things, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. At what point did Facebook identify the need for a head of open source? We want to go into your backstory here in just a second. So for the listeners who listen to the show all the time, we're getting there, but I'm just kind of curious at what point did they say, well, you know what, we really care about open source so much, let's put someone in charge. That's a very good question. So there is a story uh, which actually predates me. I believe back in the day, David Recorden joined you for one of your earlier podcasts, and uh, David really kicked off the open source program at Facebook, 2009, 2010 kind of era, I would think. And uh, at that time, we had uh, one or two interesting projects that we had worked on. And I think, you know, David was a real advocate for keeping things in the open. He'd worked on uh, uh, OAuth and various other standards himself. And uh, we open sourced projects like Cassandra, projects like Tornado, projects like 320 for iOS, and uh, really 
started to get the ball rolling in terms of giving engineers at Facebook the opportunity to share the projects they had worked on. Uh, as you might imagine, the program grew over the subsequent years. Uh, David moved on to other things. And uh, unfortunately, what happened is that a number of the projects that we had launched sort of fell into disrepair. And, you know, I can talk about this uh, a fair amount in terms of like, what, what we've learned from that. Um, but a number of those early projects, uh, the internal engineering teams either lost interest in the open source versions or they stopped using them in production. And uh, yeah, things fell into disrepair a little bit. And so in 2013, we made a decision to reboot the program in a sense and tidy up the portfolio, figure out which projects we are still we were still prepared to uh, support and get behind, uh, which ones we weren't interested in, or at least ones that we, we weren't able to support anymore. Yeah, we basically tried to get things back in order, and uh, I took on responsibility for that. But I, I will just say one thing that's interesting here is that at Facebook, there is never really a sort of a top-down mandate to go and do things. No one declared, you know, open source needs to be fixed. We'll find someone to put on it. Uh, it was very much a, a group of individuals identifying that this was something we, we weren't doing as good a job of as we had done in the past, and we just needed to go and fix it. And so uh, I jumped in, kind of raised my hand, volunteered, and uh, got things going again. And uh, three years on, almost exactly to the day, three three uh, years on, we've obviously got yeah, a pretty healthy ecosystem of projects. Uh, React has obviously been a flagship project that's you know risen uh, through the ranks over that three-year period, uh, plus a whole bunch of other projects, uh, many of which I, I will get a chance to talk about today. It sounds like you were, uh, based on that, it sounds like you were really responsible for the reboot process and building the team and kind of bolstering up what was what was kind of already there and throwing away things that didn't need to be there anymore or be supported as you said so you seem to be the one to to speak to obviously about about open source at facebook then i hope so uh do now have a team of, of folks that that help me i, I want to stress that i'm not doing this alone uh, by any means um so we have a, a small team that helps with the tooling. Uh, a lot of the success of the open source program at Facebook, we attribute to uh, having tools that make it easier for engineers throughout the company to just do the right thing anyway with regards to open source. Right. Um, and we also have a team of people who manage the uh, releases of new projects and uh, you know, work with teams to continue to uh, in, in ensure rich community interactions and, and make sure these projects go on to become more successful. So, yeah, we have a very small centralized team. I think it's important to stress that we don't try to gather the engineering for each and every project into one place. So the React team is in one part of the organization and the HHVM team is in another part of the organization. And we really try to match the engineering teams up with their communities and, and kind of give them the tools and give them the, the best practices and the guidance for them to run those projects themselves. Um, we re really wanted to create that impression or that, in fact, that reality that you know engineers at Facebook are working directly with engineers in the community uh, rather than trying to yeah. centralize some kind of central developer advocacy kind of function um, you know as, as a buffer we really wanted to you know make this a, a direct connection between engineers internally and externally cool I see about 353 people in your Facebook organization on github um, can you give us an idea, just a context around that, as far as the total number of engineers at Facebook and how many, like a percentage-wise, touch open source on a regular basis? 
one of the metrics we track very actively is you know, how many engineers throughout the company have touched GitHub repos, uh, either directly or indirectly, uh, which mm-hmm. is something I can talk about uh, as well. But uh, you know, it's it's well over a thousand in a given six month period uh, engineers throughout Facebook who are contributing to one of our. 350 project or so. Um, so it's really a core part of our culture. This is not mm-hmm. some little off to the side thing that, you know, a few crazy people do. It's, it's very much key to the way that we think about software, uh, key, you know, especially in the, in the infrastructure side of the business where we're working on uh, tools and frameworks and platforms that enable product engineers inside Facebook, you know, a, a lot of those are really, really excellent uh, open source candidates. And, uh, you know, that that's very much part of the, the the, the culture. Um, I should also stress it's not just software. I mean, we also have open sourced uh, many of the designs to our hardware and our networking and, mm-hmm. and storage systems, let alone data centers themselves. So uh, we've, we've tried to weave that open source philosophy, uh, narrative, if you like, uh, into other parts of the business as well, which has been extremely successful for us through the uh, Open Compute Project and other things. It seems like that story is told a little less, though, the hardware side. I'm, I know we're all familiar with you know, React and some of the recent success in terms of that platform and what it's done for you, but I've definitely known about some of your data center efforts and hardware efforts, and that's always interesting. I wonder you know, maybe why that seems to me, maybe just me in particular, why that seems like more of a backstory than a front story like the software side. I, I don't think we've been reticent about telling that story. It's... Uh really been a huge success for us uh, as a business as we build out these uh, data centers that we need to obviously to support uh, Facebook for the billion and a half people that, that would like to use it you know we need to have large data centers across the world with many many servers you know a huge amount of storage and networking and you know quite honestly the idea of open sourcing our designs there has really helped uh, accelerate the pace of innovation uh, throughout uh, that sort of ecosystem, uh, it's helped us to uh, iterate quickly, and and we know that many other companies in the industry, from you know Microsoft now through to Google, and uh, you know many other hardware uh, partners have been involved with the Open Compute Project. Uh, to we think you know a huge amount of success industry wide in terms of driving the. Uh, uh, pace of innovation, uh, driving down the costs of much of this hardware, uh, which we think benefits you know technology industry as a whole. Another uh, facet of Facebook open source uh, beyond the software and the hardware is you're also doing a little bit now in uh, Facebook research, which I think it just hit our radar maybe a month or so ago. Uh, Dark Forest, which is a game a Go game engine powered by deep learning and developed at Facebook AI Research, so that's also out there in the open source ether. Is this a new initiative for you guys in terms of open sourcing some of the uh, AI initiatives? There's probably two questions there. One is just the research work that we do in general is uh, always something that we've been very keen to share. The work that we do on research is often very overlapping with um, you know, the academic community. We go and speak at academic conferences and write papers. And uh, true to the scientific process, we want to make sure that uh, others are able to reproduce uh, the results that we're, we're, we're proposing or suggesting in papers. And so a lot of our open source projects historically in that area have been the data sets or the tooling required to basically uh, articulate what we've achieved uh, in those papers so that other people can go and reproduce it. More recently, a lot of that focus uh, has, has obviously moved to uh, machine learning. And uh, you know we pride ourselves on a, on a, a strong uh, research heritage uh, in our machine learning 
teams in New York and in Menlo Park and I think now in Paris. And uh, again, true to the academic community's expectations, we want to share as much of that research as possible as, as we do it. We are privileged, obviously, to be able to put resources into working on machine learning, and it's clearly an area where there is still a huge amount to be done. And it just comes back to this underlying philosophy for why we do open source at all. We feel that the more people that have access to this kind of work, the more people that can uh, reproduce it and reuse it and tweak and augment it, the more that we can help the industry as a whole move forward. And I think it's really interesting that in machine learning in particular, we're seeing Google doing the same kind of thing. We're seeing Amazon doing the same kind of thing. We're seeing Microsoft mm -hmm. doing the same kind of thing. And uh, I think it's a, a beautiful example of where um, we've, we, we don't consider any of this to necessarily be um, a competitive environment. We, in fact, we think that uh, together we can uh, move, move thinking and the industry forward uh, at a faster pace. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's very exciting to see on the GitHub accounts of all of those four companies the, the number of machine learning projects that have come, uh, come to light um, and which build on top of each other as well, I think. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's been like a Cambrian explosion in the last few months of uh, machine learning type of projects popping up on all the big tech companies, uh, open source projects. So that's awesome. I, I love the collaboration. I always think of all the wasted time and money that goes in when there's competition. A specific example is like Google Maps and Apple Maps. And, you know, like, and there's, I mean, there's other mapping companies as well, but both of those companies pouring so much into maps that could be uh, a common, you know, base and uh, seems like a waste of a waste of resources. So great to see all of the collaboration and, and even a little bit of competition, you know, look what we're doing, look what you're doing. You can, you can uh, gather ideas and see who's doing what. And uh, I think that's all healthy stuff. But I think uh, we got a little bit further than we wanted to. That's great. It was all interesting. Let's back up for just a little bit, James, and let's learn a little bit more about you because we like to get people's origin stories. We think it's very inspiring and can be insightful to find out you know, how people got where they are. So here you are. You're heading up uh, open source at Facebook. And we want to find out how come you're the person that's doing that, not just because you were around three years ago and, you know, you were involved, but like, how did you originally get in the game? That's actually a very interesting question. I've worked in, in the software industry for pretty much all of my career. And uh, actually, this was not intentional necessarily. But when I look back at my career, I can see that the common thread going through it has been my desire to work with other developers. Uh, so I've had... Uh, a bunch of experience working on sort of developer advocacy kind of work uh, at, at startups. I used to work for a uh, JavaScript HTML5 framework uh, company called Censure back in the day, and uh, we worked on things like Censure Touch. Uh, and prior to that, I worked on mobile internet, as we called it back in the day, you know, uh, startups uh, around the sort of WAP and the early mobile web uh, technologies. And again, I really... I think when I look at it, I always saw that uh, the most leveraged way that I could uh, share what I worked on is to, to you know, help in any small way I can to uh, mm -hmm. give other developers the tools uh, that they maybe not need, but like could use to be successful. I would also surprisingly not characterize myself as having been an open source ideologue, uh, you know, throughout my career. I've, uh, I've worked with a variety of different platforms over the years and um, open source hasn't always been top of my mind. But at, uh, at this point, I think 
it's difficult to think of software without thinking about open source. So it's kind of like a de facto position. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't characterize myself as, as an early open source uh, warrior. Um, you know, it's, it's always seemed pretty <laughs> obvious to me. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm, go I'm back, very... Go back in your life and tell us, like, uh, like I, I think about my first interaction with open source software, and it's probably like Linux, uh, maybe WordPress or Apache. And it was very, it was almost native to me as well. Like I didn't know life outside of it. How about yourself? Like, uh, give us early software experience or early open source experience. What got your, what got its hooks into you? I don't know whether I need to kind of open up my uh, Pandora's box of do it <laughs> historical facts. Crack, but, uh, crack it I, open, uh, man. Oh, for for the longest time, I was a I was a Microsoft uh, .NET developer um, oh. back in the day. So the early two thousands, you know, I was all about C sharp and ASP.NET, and you know, quite honestly, it was pretty amazing uh, back in the day. And uh, and then I think my epiphany was probably like you was would WordPress and PHP and honestly if I remember that era which I think yeah 2005 2006 kind of time quite honestly the tooling was pretty miserable for me having come from uh, a very polished kind of tooling environment you know that was one thing Microsoft did really well you know developer tools were pretty phenomenal even back then uh, and you know suddenly going to something like PHP and uh, Linux and MySQL, I mean, <laughs> that was a big eye-opener for me um, because on one hand, the tools were just not there. It was extremely frustrating to get things done. But the epiphany was that, wait a minute, if something isn't the way I want it, I can go down and change it. Um, mm. Maybe not all the way down to the kernel, but I can, you know, I can, I can de- dive into the depths of WordPress and make it do what I need to do. Um, whereas I could never have dived into the depths of the .NET framework to change it, to get it to do what I needed to do. And so I, I realized that it was worth taking the hit in terms of the tooling that was available uh, in order to have a little bit more uh, power over what I wanted to do in the, in the level below me in the stack. And honestly, ever since then, I think uh, one of the things I've tried to remember is just how good uh, you know tools can be and see how much more I can bring that uh, philosophy of, of good tooling to to the open source world as well because I think even now a lot of the tools that people settle for in the open source world are are you know, not as good as uh, you know some of those things were back in in the mid 2000s and huh. uh, that's why I've been very excited to see things like uh, Microsoft's shift towards open source um, yeah. ecosystems with things like Visual Studio Code like that's really exciting because I know they know how to do amazing tools and if they can bring those to open source that'll be great uh, that's why I've worked on things like Facebook's own Nuclide project which is our IDE platform that we use here at Facebook. Um, because again, you know, I'd love to be able to bring some of those IDE you know, expectations uh, to the open source world uh, in the same way that uh, you know proprietary platforms in the past have done. And we're getting there, honestly. We're getting there. Um, there's some pretty exciting stuff going on right now in the tooling space. And uh, yeah, I guess that's what gets me excited. Uh, that's what yeah. you know gets me to uh, come to work today, knowing that I can help uh, produce these exciting projects uh, or, or, or shepherd these exciting projects as well as uh, build that layer of tooling on top of them. I love that. I, I feel like we've got some insight there, recent history, kind of your, uh, your early history in your career. Take us back. Let's just pop the stack and go one level deeper into Pandora's box and take us to you know, childhood or first impressions with software, 
you know, when, when, when was your introduction into coding? And then uh, we'll get that and then we'll take our first break. Oh my goodness. So um, we're talking about a different century now, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> back in the 20th century, uh, when I was a young boy, uh, I was, uh, in fact, I know, I know the date exactly. I know the date exactly. And the reason is um, that my grandparents decided that they wanted to buy me a gift to celebrate Charles and Diana's royal wedding in the UK. So I know it was the summer of 1981. And uh, my grandparents wanted to buy me a silver spoon to commemorate their uh, royal wedding. And my parents, very fortunately, uh, suggested to my grandparents that this was not the best thing to buy uh, a young boy, and that perhaps uh, they might invest that same amount of money in a simple computer to see what I would make of it. And at the time, there was really only one uh, in the UK, which uh, fit that bill, which was a Sinclair ZX81. And I'm not sure whether the ZX81 ever made it to the US, but hopefully some of your international listeners will remember the, the Sinclair ZX81 and Spectrum with uh, with some fondness. I certainly do. And uh, this was wonderful. It was this tiny little black box. You wired it up to your TV. You had a cassette tape uh, for loading and saving. And uh, 1K of memory was all you got. And uh, no games, no apps, nothing. Uh, and uh, if you wanted to use this computer for anything, you basically had to type it in, uh, which either meant going to your local news agents and buying a magazine from which you typed uh, several hundred lines of ASCII text, or you just made up your own stuff. And within a few weeks of realizing this box didn't actually do much, I figured out that I was going to have to type in uh, some numbered lines, uh, uh, which uh, was a fairly simple form of basic at the time and uh, started writing games just to get this box to do something. And so from a very early age, I kind of got the bug for programming uh, and always have always since then had this assumption that, you know, if I've got a computer in front of me, I basically need to be able to tell it what to do at that level of control. And um, uh, I guess the passion for programming has, has stuck with me ever since. It was a formative part of my uh, education, both in and outside school. And uh, I, I guess I need to thank my grandparents in uh, 1981 for deciding not to buy me a silver spoon, but to buy me uh, a little black plastic box containing a, a Z80 chip uh, from which the rest of my career has derived. Definitely a fun story going back. I mean, love it. why have a memento when you can have a future, right? I mean, that's, that's what it seems to be <laughs> is, is what I take away from that story in terms of how you got into, you know, into programming, into computers. And what a fun history. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive much deeper into the uh, the history and the story of open source at Facebook. We'll be right back. We're excited to introduce our new sponsor, Compose. Production-ready, cloud-hosted databases. Pick your flavor. MongoDB, Elasticsearch, RethinkDB, Redis, Postgres, etcd, or RabbitMQ. And our listeners get 60 days for free on Compose. That's 30 extra days of scratch and itch and try a database you've always wanted to try. That's 60 days to migrate from that single node database you know you should be running to a three-node, highly available, backups included deployment so you can sleep better at night. It would take you longer to brew a cappuccino than it would to deploy a three-node, highly available, failover-ready, backups-included, auto-scaling database on Compose. And for the price of about four cappuccinos, you get all that with one gig of storage per month. For some databases, the price climbs as high as six or seven espresso drinks, which is still minuscule. And right now, Compose is offering a limited edition free RethinkDB shirt for anyone who tries that particular database. 
though of course with 60 days you can deploy them all totally for free. Learn more at Compose.com and when you're ready, sign up using our special URL, Compose.com slash changelog to get 60 days free on Compose. All right, we're back with James Pierce of Facebook. As a matter of fact, head of open source at Facebook, which, Jared, as we said earlier in the show, it's that's not a small thing. 180 repos on GitHub that we're actually able to track that's public, uh, or at least publicized right now. Roughly, yeah. Roughly 180, but uh, React, HHVM, Hip Hop Virtual Machine, which is what that is, obviously. Um, hack, so much fun stuff coming out of Facebook. James, I think the, the real question is, is you kind of teased it a little bit earlier, obviously, with the reboot back in 2013 and, and your presence there. But why is Facebook interested in open source? I and mean, that's really where it comes from. Obviously, we have David's earlier work in it and then you're helping to reboot it. But why Facebook? Not just you, but why Facebook? So there are three or four answers to this question, actually. And um, I, I think if we have the time, I'll, I'll run quickly through, through all of them. Yeah. It's, of course, important to remember that Facebook itself was built on open source technology right from the start. If you can picture day zero of Facebook.com or probably the Facebook.com as it was back then, Mark is sitting down in his bedroom and he's trying to figure out how to build this thing. I think he probably only had two choices. As I was mentioning earlier, the Microsoft stack was probably an option if he was prepared to spend some money or the other alternative was a LAMP stack. And I'm going to guess on behalf of Mark that... Uh, the latter was far more dorm room friendly. And uh, the, the idea that it wasn't going to cost anything, the idea that if it was successful, it might be something he could scale out more efficiently, plus a stack that if you know, there was anything that, that, that didn't work for him, he could dive in and, and help augment. And so like right from that first day, the first line of PHP, the first you know, insert command into the MySQL database, you know, it's been open source ever since then. And so we have this kind of deep obligation to uh, share back you know, the improvements that we've made to projects that we've used ever since. And now that we have a slightly larger engineering organization than just one individual in a bedroom, uh, we are able to uh, produce new projects of our own that we want to share back. So there's that real strong sense of wanting to stand on the shoulders of giants and then you know, give back in turn so that others can help uh, develop their, their next great ideas and uh, help accelerate their innovation uh, on top of what we have built. So that's definitely, you know, a strong part of our uh, our ethos here. The second thing is that I think openness is just such a core part of the Facebook culture that it would be crazy if we weren't open sourcing uh, a whole bunch of our software. So our company mission is to make the world more open and connected. And, you know, I think we think that applies to the art of software development just as much as it does to the tools and the products that we provide to support, you know, people around the world connecting on, on Facebook itself. And, you know, we see that, uh, you know, open source is kind of this uh, conversation that, that can happen through code. And we're allowing individuals around the world to connect via these projects, you know, work on things that they feel passionate about. And it's just, in a sense, uh, another layer to the sort of mission that we're, we're trying to, uh, to achieve at the company as a whole. So definitely well aligned with our mission, very well aligned with our, our culture. The third thing is that, uh, this is kind of an interesting one, it turns out it means we write better software uh, <laughs> if, we are, if we know we're going to be open sourcing it. And um, that is extremely demonstrable. So we had, uh, we've had many projects in the past where we've you know, tried to 
open source them retrospectively, where it's something that we think is valuable, that we've realized we've built in our infrastructure. And, and we try to tease it out and we have to try to drag all these tendrils of dependencies out from other parts of the, of the Facebook internal stack in order to get it ready for open sourcing. And that's such, you know, that's such a hard thing to do. Um, I mean, we have done it many times, um, but those projects where we know we're going to open source it right from the start, where the team sits down and figures out you know, how are we going to package this uh, system or this project in a way that's going to be easily shareable later on, you know, those projects are just so much uh, better architecturally. Uh, they have much cleaner APIs. They're going to be much more modular. They've got much better documentation. They've got a much easier installation process. And, um, you know, we do all of that because we know that it's going to make it that much easier to to push it out onto GitHub when we're ready. And uh, so the more that the open source uh, philosophy uh, bleeds out through the engineering organization as a whole, the better the systems we're building in the first place actually are. And uh, slightly ironically, the fact that we've open sourced a project increases the chances that it will get adopted internally too. Um, mm. So we'll have a team that builds some piece of infrastructure and it's obviously beneficial for that to be used throughout the company. We're a pretty large company at this point. And so having a, a system that's you know really easy to install, nicely modular, sits on GitHub, easy to contribute to, actually increases the chances that it'll be used elsewhere inside the company, let alone outside. So um, that has actually been kind of an unexpected benefit of what we've done here. That is surprising. It's like uh, the same social proof that works with strangers or with outsiders also works internally amongst engineers. That's that's interesting. Yeah, and we've seen uh, so we we have some uh, metrics internally where we can gauge how much people are using different projects uh, just on internal uh, systems, and um, you can see we'll have an event like React JS Conf, or we'll go and speak at a conference like uh, F8 or some other uh, industry conference, and you'll see the bump in internal usage after we've gone and spoken about something at an external conference. It's um, it's amusing, or maybe a little sad, but it's uh, you know it's, it's it's interesting that the company has now reached a level at which we need to do that advocacy. Uh, both inside and outside the company and, and making a project open from the start makes it much easier to do that. Um, I have a colleague who has this great quote. He says, open source is like the breeze from an open window. You know, basically, if you know that you're going to be opening up your kimono and, and sharing all this work with the rest of the world, it's going to have to be, uh, uh, you know, excellent quality. And uh, that has benefited us uh, very much over the last few years. Uh, and then I think finally, the, the sort of uh, un unspoken benefit of doing open source is that really gives us a chance to show other people the sorts of problems we're having to solve. And uh, I think if, if we had never open sourced anything, then other engineers you know, around the world, other communities wouldn't really be able to comprehend the kind of scale at which we operate. They wouldn't be able to comprehend the sorts of systems we have to build. They wouldn't have, to, they wouldn't have a chance to comprehend how we think about uh, performance or scaling out databases or building infrastructure that can be reused across large numbers of products. And actually, open source is a good chance for us to say, look, these are solutions to the problems we have. And... The community, by the way, doesn't always quite understand that at first. And, you know, we have that opportunity to tell the story. You know, why did we do it like this? Uh, well, you know, there's a story behind that. We figured out that at the scale we're operating or with the number of transactions we're having to deal with or with the complexity of our web UI, um, you know, this was deemed to be the best solution to the problem. And, uh, you know, that that is a way for us to tell that story about the, the types of problems we, we have to solve, which 
you know, it goes without saying, uh, gives us the opportunity to find other individuals who might want to come and help us solve some of those problems. And, uh, you know, clearly there is a benefit to our engineering brand as a whole and to the, the, the recruiting opportunities to uh, encourage others that might be interested uh, to come and join us. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I was waiting for that one. I figured, I'm like, because that, that's your fourth point there. It's in your DNA. It's part of your mission. You write better software. And then the the one that I thought was, was kind of the most, um, I don't know, I guess if you think about the most capitalistic or the most obviously beneficial is like, there's so many engineers, you have so many needs and you want people to come work at Facebook and people like to see the hard problems being solved. They like to be involved in those things. And so open source is a great way of going about that. We saw that uh, firsthand with Dan Abramov when he came on the show. I think he was, that was his first week. He was actually training in London and yeah, that was he his just got process hired. to get, uh, to get hired at Facebook was the similar model, you know, the effects of what he's talking about. Yeah. We actually, every six months ask the new engineers at Facebook, how aware they were of our various projects and uh, the program as a whole. And, uh, we're obviously uh, keen to make sure that as many people are aware of the projects we're working on. And so that number, uh, fortunately, is uh, is pretty healthy and, and it continues to go up. But the interesting fact is the number of people who join the company able to use those skills that they've uh, uh, worked on uh, before they joined the company is 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 really high. So yeah, people like Dan or Seb McKenzie, you know, they can come into Facebook and they can immediately be impactful because they are already extremely yeah. familiar with these tools and this ecosystem. Uh, and if we contrast that with uh, a new engineer who comes into the company and is confronted with this wall of proprietary technology they've never seen before, it's going to take them an awfully long time to to ramp up and be effective. And you know, at the speed at which we're growing and the, the speed at which we're bringing new engineers uh, on to our different teams, uh, the ability for people to be productive uh, and efficient as early as possible, you know, clearly has a, a big, a big benefit for us. I'm kind of curious about process. You release so much open source, especially now, and you're involved in so much open source, especially now. Um, if you've come up with a way, as you said before, like, you know, releasing something as open source makes the software better for many reasons. I'm just wondering if there's some sort of a uh, secret sauce, some sort of process, some sort of boilerplate way of doing things, whether it's like community related or documentation related or doing things a certain way. Is there, is there some sort of process that you've come up with over these years that uh, is somewhat shareable here? So we have tried to avoid forcing different teams to run their projects in certain ways. Uh, as I said, what we're really trying to do is is federate the activity on these different projects to the teams themselves. And so if the React team decides to run their project in a certain way and, and have a certain sort of interaction with their community and a certain sort of governance around uh, pull requests and, and, and so forth, then in a sense, that's, that's their prerogative. Uh, and if a different team wants to do it a different way, then that's also fine. Uh, what we as, a, as an open source team have tried to do is distill down the patterns that appear to work well and just share yeah. those uh, best practices between the different teams. And evidently, teams like React and uh, React Native and HA 
HVM have been extremely successful. And, and so a lot of new projects will simply say, look, we, we, we'll, emulate, <laughs> we'll emulate the React team because basically whatever they're doing seems to be working. And um, you know, then, then we sort of get this institutional set of best practices that build up. Uh, that's not always true, by the way. There are certain communities that expect uh, to interact with projects in different ways, both uh, geographically but also you know, in terms of stack. Um, so the JavaScript projects that we have, um, I would say there are some differences in the way we run those versus HHVM, for example, or, or maybe some of our C++ projects. But, uh, you know, I think philosophically, we, we want to give each team the leeway uh, to do what's right for their community and right for their project. Now, on top of that, you know, there's a certain amount of tooling that we think we can provide to make those best practices easier to enact. Uh, and that's, that's something that I think we're, we're pretty proud of. We've worked hard to, to develop out um, tools which just allow engineers to do the right things uh, when they're working on their projects um, by default. Uh, I'm happy to drill into some of those as well, because that's, that's kind of an interesting topic all of its uh, all to itself. I'm kind of curious that you mentioned React. Obviously, it's well known, but for those out there listening to this that may not exactly know what to emulate about React, what's successful about it, what do you know, what, what don't the rest of the listeners know about React and the way it's developed and the way the teams form around it and the way it's open source and the way the community operates and the conference and various things that make it successful? What are those attributes to you? Right. Yeah. To, to emulate so, at least, you know, if you're yeah, following that as an example. I can't guarantee that I know exactly what the magic source is, but there are, again, three or four things that have worked really well for that particular project. So uh, the first thing to point out is that when we announced it, which I think was probably May of 2013 or so, so about, to, about the same time we were rebooting the program as a whole, um, coincidentally, um, when when um, Tom Aquino and Jordan Walk stood up at JSConf and started talking about React, quite honestly, the JavaScript community <laughs> had something of an allergic reaction. I think it did not go down well. Uh, people didn't really understand what we were trying to do, why we had chosen the particular syntax to do, solve it that we had. Um, it was so unconventional in terms of the MVC patterns that were pretty much uh, established at that time that, uh, to be perfectly honest, for the first six months, it didn't look like React was going to be successful as an open source project at all. It didn't seem to have some success for a couple of years. It seemed like it was just, you know, like any other project out there that it didn't have much steam right away. It seemed to sort of like build momentum over its years. Yes. Uh, and I think there were plenty of skeptics uh, who called, called us out on it. And um, quite honestly, it was our first JavaScript project for a while. And so we didn't even have a track record of knowing what we were doing. Um, but you know what? We, we knew it was going to be successful. And internally, the reason we knew that is because it had been a long time coming. This was not something that we had just dreamt up overnight in order to talk about at JSConf. You know, this was a JavaScript uh, platform that we already were using uh, throughout the Facebook uh, suite or the Facebook products and, and websites. And so we knew that it was solving the problems that we needed. Um, this was not just some academic uh, exercise to see whether you could build, you know, angle bracket templating into JavaScript. You know, this was a system which we had already used, deployed internally and advocated successfully to hundreds of engineers with. Um, and we knew it was solving real problems that we had. So we knew that ultimately uh, people would realize that, you know, based on the boundary conditions we had, you know, this was the best solution. 
uh, it's obviously not necessarily going to be the solution for every problem, but for the problems we had, it was it was the right thing. Um, and so we were pretty pretty sure that you know eventually it would find a a, a role to play in the world, uh, even if it was a somewhat niche one. We felt there was a role for it to play in the world. Um, and we just needed to get over that initial skepticism, I think, uh, because it just looked so foreign uh, compared to what e- everything else that was out there at that time. Um, so we kept on working on it. And, and I guess this is the second thing that I think we did well with React. And this was trying to find that inner inner circle of external uh, developers who who somehow got it and could be the advocates on our behalf for React. Um, because, you know, Someone at Facebook can talk about React forever, but there is never that validation until someone outside the company sort of starts to rally to that cause. And we actually put in a, in place a, you know, a number of um, kind of ideas to, to help get that inner uh, flywheel uh, spinning. And one of the things I think React team did really well was a regular community roundup. Pretty much right from the start, we did this monthly blog post where we would share all of the uh, slides or YouTube videos or projects that people were working on uh, that worked with React. And you know, one that creates this sense of a community forming. Uh, two, it gave these individuals a kind of a, a, a brand that they could start uh, capitalizing on. Uh, and 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 three, it encouraged um, them to go out and re-advocate uh, for this um, for this project. And yeah, you just patiently wait for that inner ring to become the next ring out and that then becomes the next ring out and the next ring out. And eventually you've kind of hit this uh, critical mass. There's a runaway uh, kind of adoption of this thing. Um, And before you know it, even the skeptics have taken another look and figured out that, well, perhaps they judged it too quickly the first time. But I would would definitely (laughs) credit that idea of uh, community roundup uh, as being pivotal to React's early success. Uh, and then I think another thing that has worked very well for us on React is that we are uh, rigorously using the same version on Facebook products, uh, all the Facebook products pretty much at this point, uh, as we have on GitHub. So you are not looking at a uh, an old fork of a version that we're using internally. Uh, you're not you know, looking at a monthly code dump from us. Uh, basically, what you are looking at is the same version of React um, that we're using on Facebook.com. Uh, we use pretty much master. So if you view source on Facebook.com and you look at the version of the library, um, you know it's going to be exactly the same thing that everybody else is using. And that has been critical for a number of reasons. One, it means that you can see us working on it actively. You don't have any doubts that it's uh, being neglected. Uh, you're seeing the commits coming in uh, minute by minute as they happen. Uh, and uh, you know, two, it means that we're not going to be breaking compatibility too brutally uh, when we go from one version to a next, uh, because we ourselves would would have to go through that same pain. Um, and uh, whilst we can do some kind of nice code mods internally, you know, we're always aware of the fact that uh, we don't want to break the APIs too dramatically. And so now React has this really nice kind of phased. Uh, deprecation process from odd to even versions of React uh, that has meant that the community can come along with us as we develop the framework. And without naming names, there are other projects out there where you know the, the, the companies that back them you know don't always get to use them as first-party libraries themselves, uh, and so they don't necessarily appreciate the pain that the community is going through when you know breaking changes or whatever are made. So I think that's been critical, and that's definitely something we've tried to echo with many of our other projects. Um, you know, keep the source of truth internally and externally. Uh, as close as possible uh, to each other so that um, you know the community can one follow along with what we're doing and two feel confident that we're going to continue to maintain it and not break it too too brutally from one version to the next 
one quick question before the break about the kind of problems that you guys solve at Facebook and how that affects the open source community at large. Your problems are big. The, you know, they're quote unquote web scale. You have billions of users. You have a huge code base with a legacy and a history behind it. And so you come up with solutions that apply to those problems. Um, you also have a huge splash in the open source community whenever you release something, especially after React's success. Um, the solutions to these big problems don't always scale down to smaller problems like a small website or app or uh, an engineering team of two or a website that doesn't get that much traffic. And yet when you make the big splash, you know, there's kind of a, a cargo cult mentality. Uh, Facebook released it, it must be good. Facebook released it, it must be for me. And so you have a lot of developers who are just like hopping on the bandwagon, um, perhaps grabbing tools that don't necessarily solve their problems. Is that a factor that you guys think about? And uh, I'd just like you to speak to that idea. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, I don't think we pretend to have the solutions for uh, every problem. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think we work quite hard, whether it's at uh, tech talks or, or or in documentation, you know, to talk about when a particular thing that we've developed is uh, is appropriate. Um, and I guess we perhaps uh, implicitly talk about when it's it's not relevant. But the I, I think the the more acute example of this impedance mismatch is when the community starts to uh, want to see certain items on a roadmap for a project that really are just not going to fall in our in, in any of our plans because they're exactly. not relevant to us. Um, so that that's actually more of a, a kind of a dilemma. So we have a project called RocksDB, for example, which is a pretty amazing project. It's a key value store designed for kind of flash storage, um, mm -hmm. which you know is extremely useful uh, for us, uh, and I can imagine uh, not always useful for other people. But uh, one of the things that I, I saw happen in that community quite early on was that there was a whole set of uh, APIs and bindings that started getting built by the community to you know, connect this key value store system into Python, into Ruby, into you know, Rust. Um, you know, we would get issues coming in on the GitHub project saying, you know, please do a Ruby binding for RocksDB. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, uh, we're not going to build that. And the reason is that we don't use Ruby <laughs> at Facebook. And I'm not really sure anyone at Facebook could reasonably write that kind of Ruby anyway. And mm -hmm. sorry, right? Um, we're, without being rude, you know, we're not a, we're not a professional services company that's just going to be here writing the software that the community needs. And, and so we've really got to be clear about what is on our roadmap and what is not. And if it's not, yeah. it doesn't matter. It, it, you know, it doesn't mean it's not going to get done by the community. It doesn't mean we're not going to accept the pull requests, but the, the dilemma is that, you know, someone then goes and writes the Ruby binding and they put it in as a pull request and we accept it. And now it's sitting on a Facebook, uh, repo, uh, you know, what implicit, warranty are we making about that uh, about that you know, binding that that actually isn't something that we ourselves use we can't guarantee that it's not going to break from version to version um and so that yeah that's always a i mean we have to deal with these on a case by case basis obviously but yeah. you know, that that's often a thing that we find because the one thing we're absolutely adamant about is you know avoiding the need to ever fork these projects uh, internally we really, really want to make sure that the version on GitHub is the same as the version that we're using. You know, figuring out the APIs and the, 
the, you know, the, the, the ways that we can allow these other uh, bindings or other projects to interact with these things is super critical to allowing the community to iterate on what they need whilst not necessarily uh, distracting us from what we need uh, and not ever leaving us in a situation where we're supporting something that actually we didn't write and we can't even uh, validate does what it's supposed to do. So um, that is just a, a constant ongoing governance question that I think uh, we have to deal with. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a pretty interesting one. And I guess just to kind of round out that thought, uh, at some point these projects eventually become bigger than just Facebook alone. Um, right. you know, at, at, at some point projects need to graduate to some kind of uh, bigger governance model or some kind of more community-led model. Uh, and that's also something we're looking at very uh, aggressively on a project-by-project -project basis, looking to see when the community uh, involvement is is overtaking our own uh, and then think about how to do that in a responsible way uh, so that it goes on to become even more successful uh, beyond our own walls. So that is, uh, you know, that that's a whole like life cycle uh, story for open source projects that uh, we're we're having to figure out as we go along quite honestly but um it, you know is a pretty exciting thing to think about for the future all right we are hitting up against our next break up next we've talked about some of the stuff that facebook has open source we've talked about some of the processes or non-processes around the management of those communities we want to talk about what you open source and how you decide what to open source and what to not open source and are there gatekeepers to such decisions. We'll be right back. If you're looking for one of the most fastest, efficient SSD cloud servers on the market, look no further than our friends at Linode. You can get a Linode cloud server up and running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. And they've got eight data centers spread across the entire world, North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, and plans start at just 10 bucks a month with hourly billing Get forward access for more control, run VMs, run containers, run your own private Git server, enjoy native SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors. Use the code changelog20 with unlimited uses. Tell your friends it expires later this year so you have plenty of time to use it. Again, use the code changelog20. Head to linode.com changelog. So we're back with James Pierce talking about all things open source at Facebook. And it's so much fun to, to get an insight into the decision-making process, uh, formalized processes. How do things come out of Facebook? How do they go in? Uh, who's in charge? Those kind of things, James. And as the lead of the open source efforts there, uh, you definitely got to ask about not just how you go about open sourcing things, but what about what to open source and what has to stay closed and do engineers need to convince their managers that this should be open source? What Give us the insight. How does that all work? All right. So again, we're very blessed with a culture that celebrates open source and appreciates open source and uh, goes without saying that that uh, pervades the company uh, from the top down. So we generally don't have to argue the case for the value of open source at all. And I would say pretty much every engineering manager, every engineering director, every engineering VP, uh, let alone a large percentage of our engineers themselves, uh, 
are totally on board with the benefits of open source, uh, both to the company and to the communities and to the industry as a whole. So certainly culturally, we have a very open door to push on. Um, we don't really have to spend too much time uh, arguing why it exists at all. Uh, that said, there are obviously certain projects that are likely to be more successful than others, and there are certain things that we do that uh, we think are suitable for sharing and, and some that are not necessarily suitable for sharing. I uh, try to maintain as simple and lightweight a process as possible for deciding what we should or shouldn't open source uh, to the extent that we even have an intern tool, you know, an internal tool uh, on our, our Facebook intranet that basically allows people to answer a short series of questions uh, as an engineer or as an engineering team and uh, basically finish the wizard, press the button, and we will enter into a, a very lightweight process to determine uh, whether mm. that project is, is good to go or not. So uh, as long as a, a project fits well into the kind of the template of what we're looking for, you know, we can really accelerate these things and, and, and publish them pretty quickly. There's not a many months long bureaucratic process, you know, involving lots of uh, decision making or death panels or whatever. It's, it's very much a, <laughs> a, a fairly, fairly open door for most types of projects uh, to go through. And I should say, you know, to some of my earlier points, really the, the, the main criterion of, of, of everything out of everything is uh, I need to be comfortable that a team is committed to maintaining the project after it has been launched. And mm. this goes back to some of our experiences with in the early days of our open source program, where we literally pushed code out and walked away from it, uh, or we gave it to a foundation and walked away from it. And those all ended badly because there wasn't that sense of ownership. We didn't give these projects a chance to grow up and uh, and, and get traction with the community. So that is really the thing that I'm looking for. Is this team in it for the long run? Because the few months it takes to get something ready and the glory of open sourcing it in the first place is just tiny in comparison to the potentially you know, multi-year commitment you have to keep the project going, keep it maintained, work with the community, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we're really, really keen to make sure that the teams behind it understand that obligation and are ready to meet that challenge. Yeah. Uh, of course, we do also have uh, a legal team that is looking at licensing and uh, you know looks at, at areas where we feel we have something uh, new and exciting to offer the world versus uh, maybe just a, a me too kind of project. You know, we never want to be releasing projects that are just apparently a rewrite of something else that already exists. You know, we're trying to be additive to the, the community uh, in a way that uh, you know is uh, you know beneficial to everyone. Uh, and then, uh, you know, finally, we have some guidelines around which parts of the Facebook infrastructure are more likely to be good candidates for open source than others. So uh, I think I, I mentioned earlier uh, in the uh, in the podcast, we've got a couple of uh, you know, really strong areas for open source, such as the JavaScript product infrastructure like React and React Native, Jest, Relay, uh, GraphQL, etc., uh, and so mm -hmm. anything in that kind of area is a is a pretty strong candidate. We kind of feel like this is something that's really beneficial to a very large community. Um, machine learning, we also mentioned that's a very strong area for us right now. Uh, core data, database infrastructure, things like uh, MySQL, uh, RocksDB, those are also uh, very popular. Uh, and I think the final area that we probably haven't mentioned on the call yet, uh, which is actually a huge area for open source wise is developer tooling as a whole. So our developer infrastructure team that is building um, 
compilers and build tools and uh, CI systems, uh, editors, code review tools. You know that that's a whole uh, little ecosystem of stuff that we've been we've been open sourcing a lot recently. So um, some of your listeners might be familiar with Buck, which is a build tool for Android and iOS, uh, which is something that came out of that group. Uh, you may be familiar with Nuclide, which is the IDE. Uh, that we use at Facebook and which we've also open sourced so people can see like the actual tools we use to build stuff. Um, so that's another big area. So yeah, we have these uh, four or five kind of pillars or, or, or areas of, of software within the business where we're just like, okay, it fits perfectly, really works well in the open source community. Let's just go for it. Uh, but definitely the infrastructure is, is an area that, that shares really well. So you mentioned this questionnaire. I'm sure the question about maintenance is on there. You know, are you in it for the long haul? Can you give us a sample? What what are the other? You said it's a lightweight little wizard. What are some of the other questions on that that you would ask a prospective open sourcer? So obviously we want to know what the name is going to be, and we want to know whether it's going to need to have a, a website um, because we have a, a small uh, design team that can help put nice logos uh, onto these projects and build out websites. Uh, we're looking to know what sort of uh, technical writing is going to be required to build out documentation for projects. Uh, these are often things that engineers don't actually think about, but which uh, my team can, can help uh, put together. Uh, we also... Um, you know, keen to find out whether the source of truth for the project is going to be internal, in which case we sync it out to GitHub, or whether it's going to be on GitHub, in which case we sync it back in again. Um, so we know how to organize the tooling uh, around the, the actual code being transferred uh, bidirectionally. Um, well, you know, that's basically it. It's a pretty, sh it's a pretty short form. We don't ask a bunch yeah. of questions. Um, we default to a fairly standard uh, set of licenses and we have a fairly standard boilerplate for how people contribute and so forth. Um, so yeah, most of it is pretty templated and we're just asking for, for the kind of the, the, the things that, that vary from project to project. Well, James, let's talk about communities. I know that uh, software is software, right? It is code, but uh, it's powered by people and that's what Facebook is powered by is, is people. The, the many billion that are, or I guess the billion and a half that's on Facebook now that as users, but also those behind it too actually make it, uh, you must have some strong affinity towards propping up the right communities. So I'm, I'm curious what you can share, especially as you mentioned earlier, towards uh, React and the things you're trying to emulate there as you do more projects that have that kind of limelight, so to speak. But I'm curious if you can share any tips on how you involve community, how you build community around your open source projects, how you nurture that open source community, and maybe, maybe ultimately... Uh, who actually owns the projects? I know you mentioned licensing, obviously, but do you feel like they're Facebook owned or do you feel like they're community owned? Okay, so lots of lots of questions in there. A lot um, of questions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first uh, thing here, to let say me is break it up. Let me break it up. Let's let's start first with building strong communities. How do you nurture them? How do you support them? Let's start there. You know, I think this this answer varies during the. The life cycle of a project. Uh, I touched on this a little earlier. The the seven stages of of life of a of an open source project. Um, you know, it starts off as an experimental thing, and then you know we try to incubate it and make it into a successful project. And you know, not everything makes it, but you know, hopefully many of them do. Uh, and then we grow the community around it. And you know, for many projects, at some point we reach a a stage where the community governance and the community contributions actually overtake 
the contributions of Facebook themselves. And then we have a whole set of new questions about, well, where do we take it uh, from there? Yeah. Uh, and then there are these off-ramps at various parts of that life cycle. You know, what happens if that chip project doesn't become successful? What happens if the community just doesn't seem interested? Or what happens if we ourselves stop using uh, a piece of software because, you know, suddenly uh, it's harder for us to carve out the time to, to maintain it. So, you know, what do we do if... Uh, we need to find another uh, steward for that project, or what do we do if we need to archive it as a whole? So, you know, underpinning all of our interactions with the community, one thing I hope we can do a good job of is just be explicit about that uh, that life cycle. So, um, and the role that the community can can play in in helping a, a project along that way. You know, ultimately, I believe that if you ship great quality software, uh, it, it it will get meritocratically um, popular and uh, communities will form around it and communities will continue to grow uh, and contribute back as well. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not all, is, is, that's not the only part of that uh, you know, formula. I mean, there's a lot more that we uh, have to do as well to, to help these communities form. Can we, can we pause there and talk about some of those things, maybe not so much how you help them form, but what are some ways that yeah, Facebook yeah, yeah. Yeah. supports so, those communities? You know, the key thing that we do is to connect the engineers at Facebook directly with the community. So that, that's basically the, the ground zero for all of these interactions. Um, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but we have never felt like we needed to put a, a, an official community management role into any of these uh, projects. Um, you might think that that would be, yeah, the first thing to do is get someone who can manage the community. But honestly, uh, we've not needed to do that, and we've found that we can be quite effective just by having excited and motivated and professional uh, engineers at Facebook uh, doing the majority of that community interaction themselves. So that that would be my first kind of takeaway, I think, is you know don't try to add a new kind of artificial role into the mix to to try to you know somehow corral the community uh, you really i think need to be creating these bonds on a on a engineer to engineer level um at least in the very early stages of a project uh in terms of uh, things that we do to support uh the communities themselves well clearly we're putting the effort into uh, working through issues and su- being very supportive of people's pull requests. And, you know, incidentally, one of the things we do is, is track the average life uh, or the average uh, duration of a pull request so we can see which projects are being very prompt about, uh, you know, dealing with community interactions and, and which are not. Um, and so, you know, putting metrics around some of this interaction actually just uh, motivates engineers to do the right thing community wise anyway. But as well as those interactions online through GitHub uh, and, and uh, IRC or whatever, we also try, especially in these sort of early to mid-stage projects, we try to invest in uh, meetups and events and making sure that engineers go out to speak at other tech conferences, go to speak at other companies uh, to basically start spreading the word. Uh, and again, we don't invest in uh, a sort of developer advocate role that goes and does this on behalf of engineers. We really try to make sure that it's engineers themselves who are on stage uh, or in these communities that are that are doing the interactions themselves. It's far more authentic. It's far more about uh, you know connecting uh, like with like. At some point, these projects uh, you know have the potential to become in you know uh, 
in, in, inside the portfolio, head and shoulders above everything else. And I think we're at a state with React and React Native where you know these projects are now at a point at which we need to start thinking uh, how do we uh, involve the community uh, even more. And we uh, we're thinking about that very actively. Um, yeah. How do we uh, how do we give more non Facebook employees uh, the 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 commitments to to accepting pull requests? Uh, and that's something we've really worked hard on on React Native to to a lot of it, uh, success. Um, how do we get these ardent uh, community members to feel like it's something that they own? Um, you know, how do we uh, both online and offline get these uh, these the, the core part of these communities together? Uh, to start, uh, you know, working on driving the project forward, coming to some consensus on what the roadmaps are, and something that we found, um, you know, particularly exciting for React and React Native. How do we engage with other large companies that are also now using these projects to drive them forward? So community suddenly becomes not just about individual engineers or about startups or about people doing stuff in their spare time. It becomes about, you know. The Microsofts of the world, and it becomes about the Samsungs of the world, and it becomes about you know the the Twitters of the world who are you know now at this point also using React for some of their mobile uh, services, and you know how do we as an industry start moving this forward um, and you know developing this this project in a way that uh, fulfills the needs of you know companies uh, you know above and beyond Facebook alone. So that's an interesting era that I think we're just starting to explore now um, and uh, looking to see how the governance changes. Uh, in order to uh, respond to those requirements is is probably an exciting period ahead for us. I think we've seen some histories with governance in other communities like JavaScript with uh, with Node, for example, and how that's changed. And so that's obviously raised a lot of uh, a lot of ears in terms of people watching out for how governance plays out through a project, whether it's stewarded, as you mentioned earlier, by a company or actually started by a company. So I think a lot of what you had to say that really did kind of answer my who owns it, so to speak, at the end. I think obviously you have your licensing, but it seems like you're at the point where you're trying to figure out not so much who owns React, for example, just to use that as an example, but um, how you include other people to give them ownership, to give them roles to play that are maybe typically Facebook engineer specific. Would you agree with that? I would agree that this is very much a, a work in progress. Um, we as a company, are in, I would say, uncharted territory, uh, yes. at least from our own point of view. Many are. And, uh, uh, and yeah, we want to do this in a way that, that is, uh, you know, responsible for the community and for the stability of the software too, right? I mean, we don't want to suddenly uh, put React into some sort of model uh, or environment right. where uh, the speed at which we've been able to develop it and the, the quality of the software uh, suffers in any way. So that that is actually the challenge, as I said. Uh, reflecting back on some of our very, very early projects where we were premature about doing that um, and where the, the project suffered, uh, at least in the short to midterm, quite significantly. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that's something we want to reproduce. So I think we'll know when it's the right time. And, uh, and I think we know that might be quite soon. Um, and we'll be working with uh, our you know, community and with partners in other large companies, as I said, you know, Microsoft have made a stated investment to to work on React Native for Windows. Uh, Samsung have made a stated investment to work uh, on React Native for for Tizen. Um, and you know, I think as an industry, we know how to figure out well how do we make sure this thing goes on to become, uh, you know, it take it to the next level uh, in a way that uh, doesn't uh, damage the the speed and uh, the the quality of the software that we've been uh, been able to build to date. Let's certainly tease up the second to last question we have here, which is really around, 
you and your team and, and the way you're operating around open source to inspire the companies you'd mentioned, you know, having the commitment from other companies, which could tempt to some degree seem like they're competitors in many ways, and I guess uh, could be, but they're obviously supporting React and supporting, you know, that on a certain platform, so to speak. Uh, but I'm kind of curious, was it your mission? Is it your mission even to inspire the companies? I'm thinking large and small, not just the big companies that you may see as competitors or not as competitors, but to follow suit with the support, as you'd mentioned, Mark, back in the dorm room, going back to the early part of the podcast where Facebook's origination, ground zero, code zero, so to speak, uh, was built on open source. And I guess the question really is, 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 is it your mission, maybe even your personal mission to inspire other companies, large and small, to follow suit with how you've supported and how you feel about open source to the degree that Facebook does? I would definitely say so. Uh, you know, again, that's a pretty easy door to push on. I don't think that uh, there are many corners of, uh, or at least... I know there's still some companies out there that are big that are not doing anything in open source. Uh, or not so much, not as much as they should. Being as open as you have is the point. You know, like you've really, you like you said earlier, it's part of your DNA, open source. And not many companies actually have open source as their DNA. I think it is harder for companies that are significantly or, or even somewhat older than us. We, you know, formed in 2004, 2005, um, were just at that sort of tipping point at which you had this, uh, sorry, that's a bit of man management jargon. I should have avoided tipping point. But, um, you know, it, it, it was a sort of a very ripe era for companies uh, like Facebook um, to suddenly be able to build things out very quickly, um, you know, around the time that, you know, AWS and other sort of alternatives came out. Um, but I think if you were to have started Facebook 5, 10, 20 years earlier or, or something similar, you wouldn't necessarily have had that open source DNA quite so strongly. Right. And so, I, again, I want to come back to Microsoft. I think their recent sort of conversion or uh, um, adherence to sort of open source philosophy has been really fantastic to see because I know internally that that has been a cultural shift that they've had to, to, to very consciously make. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that we need to celebrate that. Um, so we've been lucky. And I think a lot of companies that have formed since you know, since the mid 2000s um, have found it just so much more uh, a natural part uh, of their DNA. That said, um, you know, there's no reason why older, more established companies uh, can't, can't be at least made aware of the benefits that we've seen from open source. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to talk about the benefits that it's brought to us uh, as a company um, and the benefits that it's brought to us as an engineering organization, because, you know, I would love to see that playbook uh enacted in 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 other parts of the industry in other parts of in other parts of the world and you know to to that end we've um we've created a, a small group uh, called the to do group which is uh, essentially a uh, a group of people like me who work on open source programs for large companies uh, and that's really a chance for us uh, each to talk about the challenges that we've had to overcome the tooling that we've had to build to manage these pr uh, programs and the the benefits that we've seen and uh, the to do group now has you know 20 odd uh, members of all the large companies that you might imagine uh, and we have a really a healthy dialogue going about the uh, the sorts of challenges that we each face and we're all learning from each other's experiences and hopefully getting more 
of this good news out to uh, other large companies that uh, can benefit from doing open source like this. My philosophy is that eventually uh, we will get to a state in the industry where engineers just assume that the company that they are going to go and work for has a strong open source philosophy or a strong open source program. And so uh, if you want to remain competitive, even in the employment market, let alone in the sort of product market, uh, you need to make sure you have a good open source story. Otherwise, you're just going to have trouble hiring people. Uh, and this is a message that I've uh, I've hoped will we'll get out to um, you know the, the technology industry and neighboring industries uh, as much as possible because that's a very powerful narrative and it benefits uh, benefits us all that's certainly music to my ears because that was almost exactly what i wanted to hear from that kind of answer was was <laughs> just that you know your philosophy is obviously what you said and that's uh that's something to applaud and i i also agree on the microsoft front i'm so happy uh, as someone who's been a podcaster for as long as i have been since 2006 to not so much just cover open source but care about how big companies produce what they produce and support the, the culture of computing and, and software development and all this different stuff. But uh, that, that's interesting to, to see there. We'll, we'll let you go, James, on one last question here. And uh, this is a question that our, our listeners absolutely love to hear and answer to. And that's really what's on your radar. So if you had a weekend to hack, if you had uh, you know, nothing at Facebook, maybe you know, no work-related things, you just was just maybe in a log cabin uh, tucked away by yourself, you're like, you know what? I'm gonna play with this today. What open source thing? What technology out there is is on your radar to hack on? All right, so that's a very long list, and um, I, I think you're assuming that I discount the hundreds of open source projects that we ourselves have. Um, so let me look elsewhere. So something that I am getting pretty excited about uh, is machine learning. Uh, we talked about it a bit earlier. At Facebook, we've open sourced a bunch of libraries and, and toolkits for, uh, for machine learning, and um, many others have too. And there's clearly some sort of perfect storm happening, and there are many areas across the industry where uh, machine learning is, is starting to make real headway at solving problems that were previously impossible, uh, whether it's uh, self-driving cars or uh, search algorithms or playing uh, board games. But the one area that I have not seen much discussion uh, regarding machine learning, uh, but which I feel is just totally ripe for it, is the art of writing software itself. Because I am absolutely convinced that uh, many of the machine learning techniques that have been built for these other uh, kind of scenarios uh, have some analog uh, for actually coding as a, as a craft. And I'm inspired by the fact that, you know, we've obviously reached a point at which computers can now beat humans at chess and can now beat humans at Go. Uh, but routinely, a computer and a human uh, together, playing together, can beat either all of the other humans or all the other computers. Uh, it, I was listening to another podcast recently about this, that there are whole leagues, uh, for chess at least, where it's basically all comers. You can bring a computer along uh, and play with the computer, uh, or you can have the computer play on its own, or you can have a human play on their own. And it's these hybrid you know, human and computer that always win um, because you've got the sheer data crunching of the computer and you've got the kind of the brilliance and creativity of the human to augment that. And this just sounds like the kind of winning combination we should apply to the art of writing software because if you think about what you do as a software programmer day to day, an awful lot of it is uh, not high level thinking. A lot of it is just 
uh, you know, shuffling braces around and indenting things and getting rid of the lint errors. And it's actually not 100% of your time is spent on high-level brilliance and kind of uh, analysis and, and algorithmic thinking. You know, the, the computers ought to be able to do a lot more of that dull day-to-day -day work uh, involved in, in writing software. And I would love to see how we can somehow train systems to more augment the work that engineers do on a day-to-day -day basis, um, not just at Facebook, but, you know, worldwide. Uh, because for 40 years, we've all been staring at monospaced fonts with 80 columns moving stuff around to tell computers what to do. And I kind of feel that 40 years on, we ought to have done a better job of disrupting ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a great job of going and disrupting the car industry and disrupting you know, the search industry and the board game industry, but we haven't done a great job of disrupting ourselves. And I would love to see more intelligent tooling um, that might sort of explore uh, how to make uh, engineers, developers, um, one... 0.5, 5, 10 times more productive than they are today, and I'm, I'm convinced it can be done. So um, if I ever had a, you know, a weekend to just go and hack on something, that is what I would do. I would take some large corpus of code, and I would uh, crack open some machine learning framework like uh, scikit-learn, and I would uh, put the data into some kind of structure that I could train the machine on, and I would look to see whether I could uh, encourage it to not necessarily write raw code, but whether I could encourage it to help me write what I needed to write in a more efficient way. Um, and I imagine, you know, some incredible IDE uh, that is basically a human accepting all the suggestions that a computer is making one after another to create the, the code that I that I want. Um, Autocomplete on steroids is something that we as an industry, I think, should be aspiring to and looking forward to. Um, and uh, that, I think, is uh, something that I'm, uh, yeah, very excited about, looking forward to seeing what the industry can come up with in, in five to ten years. We just need to step back and see how we can apply some of these techniques to our own our own work as well as to other industries. Um, and in my very small way, I'd love to hack on that. You've got some big dreams, my friend. Big dreams. I like that. That's a good answer to uh, that question. Um, this is a chance to, I guess, give you uh, a chance to say anything closing as we close up the podcast, anything that has been left unsaid, anything you want to share to the listening audience. You got a, an audience of open source developers out there that, uh, probably, uh, really care about what Facebook is doing in open source. So is there any closing thoughts you want to share? So one of the things that Facebook tries uh, really hard to do is, um, art articulate its mission and articulate its culture, uh, in a way that kind of preserves our values. And one of the ways that we do this is by putting posters up around the campus and uh, stickers on the back of laptops and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, much of it just kind of washes over me. But there's one that really sticks with me, which is that we always should consider our journey to be 1% finished. And uh, I know you've said some very nice things about the Facebook open source program uh, during this podcast, uh, but I really want to stress that uh, we are just at the beginning of what we want to do. Uh, each one of our projects is potentially just at the beginning of what we might be able to do. And I am uh, super excited to work with developers all around the world uh, and with my colleagues at Facebook uh, to uh, look ahead and see what we can do with that remaining 99% of the journey that we haven't yet made. So this journey is 1% finished and we're looking forward to, to joining you. Well, fantastic, James. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to share with us a peek behind the curtain of Facebook and open source and how you apply that to your business, how your business uh, began with that at, at Code Zero, as you'd mentioned before and how it's a part of your DNA, how it's a part of your mission, how it make, helps you make better software, 
uh, and everything else you've shared here today. Um, thank you so much for your time and listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this show. Obviously we love, uh, you contributing, but, uh, we have an open inbox ourselves. Speaking of being open, uh, if you go to github.com slash the changelog slash ping, we have an open repository there of many issues, uh, that Jared does a great job of triaging and, and helping kind of hear from our listeners what to cover both in our, our, uh, our weekly email called changelog weekly and also on this podcast. So head there, uh, find what's already there that you might like, pal on and add a comment or, uh, or throw your own issue in there. But uh, that is it for this week. So everyone, let's uh, say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, James. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.